0: Welcome to the Hungry Authors Podcast. A hungry author is someone who is quite simply hungry for it. They're willing to do what it takes to achieve their writing dreams. If that resonates, you're in the right place. I'm Ariel. And I'm Liz. We're two book
1: coaches, editors, and writers here to help you get there. We interview experts and chat about all things publishing and writing to educate and build a community of successful writers, whatever that means to you. Welcome, let's get started.
0: Hey, Hungry Authors, one of the benefits of having a podcast is getting to talk to some of your writing heroes. And today we're talking with one of my writing heroes, Kate Moore. Kate is the author of The Radium Girls and The Woman They Could Not Silence, which were both New York Times bestsellers and have won several awards. These are works of narrative nonfiction, a term that we know is hotly debated, but today we get the full definition from Kate. She actually started her career in editing and then transitioned to ghostwriting and finally writing her own books. You're going to hear all about her experience in acting and how that helps her bring her subjects to life and how she researches books before she writes. Thanks, Kate, for joining us from Cambridge. We're super excited to have you today.
2: I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me on the podcast.
0: So we'd love to hear, you know, how did you get started with writing? I really want to hear, you know, kind of the story of your first book. What was that like?
2: So my journey to becoming a a writer and particularly a full-time writer which I'm very fortunate to get to say that's what I am now was kind of a bit um, topsy-turvy really like you know my first book was published while I was still an editor at a publishing house and it sort of came about because I was an editor at a publishing house I I was very much one of those people that was always very hands-on and if opportunities came up I would put my hand up and put myself forward and suggest myself as an author for a book. Um, Early in my career as as an editor which is what I did before I became a full-time writer I was an editor uh, for a publishing house for um, over a decade and in the early part of my career I worked for very sort of um independent, go-getting, idea-generating publishers. So a lot of the list that we were publishing was not writers, you know, squirrelled away in a garret somewhere, writing books, finding an agent, selling them to us. Mm-hmm. It was myself and my colleagues going out for a boozy lunch, uh, brainstorming ideas, thinking, you know what, that I think that's going to hit the zeitgeist. Let's do a book on that. And then we would look for a writer to write the idea that we'd come up with, yes. um, which was obviously you know, incredible as someone who ultimately hoped to become a writer um, Mm. to see how the ideas were generated, to be in those discussions about what makes a commercial book. Um, And then, of course, as I say, the opportunity to say, well, I think I could write that book. So Mm. the books in the early part of my career were actually ideas that were generated um, in the publishing Mm. house that I was working for. And then I put myself forward to write them. And it, it was a real, mix of genres you know I did children's books I did gift books for Valentine's Day um you know a whole sort of range of, of different things in that sort of area you know gifting humor and
1: right. um,
2: those right. sorts of books so my first book being published was you know along those lines and um, so it wasn't perhaps what many of your you know people that you had on the podcast where it is, you know, you have the one idea, you work for years on it, you try and find the agent. That wasn't my journey uh, mm-hmm. to my first book being published.
0: I love that you started your career as an editor. I'm like, great, that gives me hope because I did the same thing. And a lot of my ideas, you know, and the authors that we worked with, it was very much the same process of like, we have an idea in the publishing house and now we want to go find the right author to make it happen. And it's so cool that you were able to just raise your hand and kind of take opportunities as they came up.
2: Yeah, I mean, I was obviously incredibly fortunate that the publishers trusted me to, to do it as well, you know, um, and I think that's true of, you know, when I first became a ghostwriter, I was trusted by someone, you know, for that first time. And I guess that's true of any job, any career, you have to have, you have to find the people that believe in you and that trust, obviously, then, you know, you try and repay it by delivering a good book.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up the ghostwriting. I was going to take it that direction at some point anyway, because that's Mm -hmm. my primary trade is ghostwriting and um, full manuscripts and proposals. Yeah. And as you were talking about your first books being not necessarily your own ideas or your own, you know, passions and interests. Yeah, I feel similarly and that probably like, equipped you for ghostwriting too is that like you know you have to get good at writing about things that you still like and are interested in so that you know you can enjoy it of course but they're not your idea right they didn't start in your own brain they're sort of somebody else's that you're ushering into existence which I still find incredibly rewarding
2: yeah I mean because I think it's still to actually deliver the book you still have to sort of you know make it your own in the sense of you know the the words are pouring out through your heart and head onto the paper so I think yes it, it might start as someone else's idea but certainly the way I ghost wrote you sort of you know you there is a lot of me sprinkled in the books as as well that you know it is a, a sort of transformative process the way you know where the idea begins the, the process of working with someone on their book but there is a lot of the ghostwriter in there as well I think
1: yeah i totally agree well it's just an important thing to consider too for people seeking a ghostwriter that the process is so collaborative that you don't need just need to find somebody who you trust and is you know a good writer but somebody who you know who you genuinely like and and resonate with their own way of doing things and, and ideas because probably
2: they're going to end up in there a little bit, you know? I think the thing that actually um, benefited my ghostwriting the most was the fact that I acted as well, that that was another passion of mine that along, you know, my sort of paid day job was being an editor in a publishing house, but I always adored acting as well. And so I kept that going in my spare time. Mm -hmm. And when I then became a ghostwriter, I felt it was the ultimate acting writing job because you're having to empathize so much, you know, I was ghostwriting memoirs, you know, very Mm -hmm. intimate, personal, harrowing memoirs a lot of the time, and so, you know, obviously you have the process of of sitting down on the sofa with the person that you're working with, they pour out their heart to you, it's an incredibly special and privileged position Mm -hmm. to be in, to sit and hear someone's story, Mm -hmm. and then to try and use their own words as much as possible to you know take their story onto the page but I think for me the thing that benefited me with, was was the, the most is as you're writing you're writing in the first person you are imagining what you've heard the scenes that you've been told about by the person who was there at the time but you mm-hmm. have to put yourself in their shoes and empathize with mm-hmm. them so deeply you know when you're imagining it but you're also thinking what am I feeling as this is happening to me and I'm experiencing Mm -hmm. this and I know all the backstory that's come before and Mm -hmm. you know you're trying to express that story through words but I certainly felt that my acting ability and my ability to put myself in someone else's shoes to inhabit a part really came into play when I was ghostwriting as well. That
1: makes so much sense to me, and I actually recently heard someone else say, cannot remember her name, and I we're gonna have to I'm gonna have to look it up and put it in the um in the notes so that she gets credit here because I am blanking on it right now. But I heard another ghostwriter writer on uh, Kent Sanders' podcast. We have a friend named Kent. He he has a, a podcast called The Daily. Writer. Anyway, she was saying she began not as an actor, but as a playwright. And that turned into an incredibly lucrative and successful ghostwriting career. But she felt she said the same thing. She's like, I actually didn't realize that writing dialogue for other people was training me how to be a ghostwriter, which was just fascinating to me. And I, yeah, resonate a lot with what you just said because i actually came to ghostwriting um my first books and still today i do a lot of more like prescriptive non-fiction like self-development professional development stuff and i really i really like that and have carved out a little niche for myself but it's a lot more straightforward you know it's kind of formulaic and and we tell stories i consider myself like a decent storyteller but it's not memoir of course and so this year i've taken on my first two memoirs that i've worked on all year and it's been phenomenal they've been two of my favorite projects but that piece of it that was like as I was sitting down to write I did you know all these interviews and had hours and hours of content and I loved these clients and I knew them well and I sat down to write and I I mean it probably should have dawned on me earlier but I was like wow this is flexing a real different muscle than just like teaching and illustrating with a story this is like i don't just tell the story i really have to talk about yeah feelings and scene setting and i was like oh man i haven't done this before it was very different and really challenged me in a, in a positive way
2: yeah i i i loved ghostwriting um mm-hmm. when i was doing it. it it was such a a gift i i really enjoyed it and it was such a special experience
0: kate yeah. i'm curious do you see the ghost writing that you did kind of as preparation, especially with memoir, almost as preparation for now the narrative nonfiction that you're doing with kind of retelling like Elizabeth Packard's story, almost I can see there being kind of a ghostwriting feeling to it of like embodying her story for her.
2: Wow. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think obviously at the time I had no idea that it would be preparation for the books that I'm writing now, but I, absolutely. And I think you know, when I first published Radium Girls, which is the book that came before Elizabeth Packard's story, uh, The Woman They Could Not Silence, um, it was, Radium Girls was my first history book. I'd never taken on a project like that before. Yeah. But yes, ultimately, it was like I was the Radium Girls ghostwriter. And I sort of approached it like that, I think, which is perhaps yeah. why the book comes across in a different way than, than perhaps other people have chosen to tell this story in the past. And my process essentially was the same in the sense of I sought out first-person material. You know, the radium girls couldn't sit with me on a sofa and tell me their stories, but I could pour through the archives and get that first-person account from them through their court testimonies, through newspaper articles and interviews, through letters, through diaries. And then just as I did when I was ghostwriting, you take that material and you transform it into... The story that you're telling. So, yes, absolutely. I found it so helpful to have ghostwritten memoirs before. And I feel very much that what I'm doing now is essentially sort of being a ghostwriter for people who are now, you know, dead and gone. But mm-hmm. I try and look back through history to find their voices and their accounts and tell the story very closely from their perspective you know I wouldn't say that my history books are balanced at all they're very much you know told from the perspective of the of the the central subject that I'm writing about and all my empathy is for them yes
0: oh I can totally see that it almost feels like you're yeah you're forming a friendship with them and a partnership with them and allowing them to just tell their story through you that's so cool
2: yeah, completely. And that's very much how I feel about it. And it, particularly, I think, with the Radium Girls, I it, it did feel like I was a, you know, a megaphone for them to have, have a voice again. And what was really special with Elizabeth's book is that she herself was an author. She published her memoirs, she wrote journals, kept journals. Uh, there was such a huge wealth of first-person material available for her story. You know, she'd done it all herself anyway. You know, she was an author who had succeeded in her time and people had simply forgotten her voice. Mm. And it was wonderful, as you say, to sort of work with her. You know, if if you read The Woman They Could Not Silence, you know, her words are woven throughout the narrative. It's her voice that we hear. It's her thoughts and feelings that I've got, you know, directly from you know, the sources that she left behind. Mm-hmm. So it, is, it was a, a very collaborative project to to stitch that book together as sort of a patchwork of all the research and all the empathy and the sort of perhaps more literary writing that I brought to it. But then, you know, she herself is there in her raw, brilliant form, um, you know, having her voice again, enabling her voice to be heard.
0: When you decided to write about the Radium Girls and you decided to write Elizabeth Packard, did you, how much of that research did you do beforehand to decide, like, is there enough research? Can I get enough of that first person material to tell the story? I mean, were was there any question of like, will I be able to finish this book if I don't know, you know, some of these details?
2: Um, You're right. I did the research—not all the research, but enough research first before I chose them as um, subjects—to know that yes, there there is going to be enough here. It's a little bit of a a leap into the dark because obviously you don't know exactly what you're going to find once you properly start digging and committing—you know—months and years of your life to these topics. But with with both the books, actually there had been other academic books published on them first and so I got glimpses from those that there were sources available that had first-person material and um, those other books had not utilized it but it told me that the material was out there and that therefore I would be able to create um, an intimate first-person heavy narrative non-fiction account of the stories.
1: Speaking of narrative non-fiction, yes. were you define it for us because we have chat groups on like boxer and WhatsApp and stuff with all of our writerly friends and have yeah. had back and forths before i know you can google the definition but we <laughs> all seem to have slightly varying definitions of what narrative nonfiction is so can you define it for us once for all or how you see it anyway
2: well how i see it as you say because i think there is a degree of, of debate and i find what i found interesting as a British author coming to America and talking about the kind of work that I do. My understanding is perhaps that maybe in America you use a phrase called creative nonfiction yeah. more, yes. or, they, or do you use both? You know, well, do you use both in America? Or both are
0: used, but what people mean by each of those terms is so subjective. And so, I personally, I don't really use the term creative nonfiction because I don't know what that means. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so yeah. I
0: try not to use it.
2: Well, I, I've always used narrative nonfiction and, you know, even when I was an editor and a, a publisher, what I loved publishing was narrative nonfiction and memoir, which is, you know, why it made sense then for me to, that's what I went on to do myself as a writer. For me, narrative nonfiction is essentially, the it's nonfiction that reads like a story, I would say, yeah. but it, the important thing is it's nonfiction. So everything in it is based on fact and not even just based on fact, everything in it is fact. So, you know, even Mm -hmm. if you're describing what the weather is like that day, what people are wearing, what they're saying, it is factual, you know, you have gone away and researched what was the weather like, what were people wearing, you have taken the dialogue from an actual historical source, so that you know, that is exactly what they said, or at least it's what someone who was there at the time has recorded that Mm -hmm. they said. So yeah, for me, narrative nonfiction, it's nonfiction, but it reads like a story, the Characters in it are, you know, they feel like characters. They're fully rounded. They have thoughts, feelings, um, flaws, attributes. You know, the story, the history, is revealed. Um, perhaps with cliffhanger endings. Perhaps there are reveals where the, the reader is surprised by the twists that the history has taken. And um, as I say, it's it's a story. There's a beginning, a middle, and end. There are twists. You know, it, it's engaging, descriptive way of relaying nonfiction basically. Yeah. I love that.
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. That's always been one of my favorite genres too, is, you know, books like Seabiscuit. I remember reading Seabiscuit for the first time and I was like, this book has changed my life. I didn't know that factual books could be like this.
2: Yeah. It's amazing when people make that discovery. You know, I've had readers contact me about radium girls saying the same thing, you know, this is the best non-fiction book i've ever read i didn't know it could be like this i always thought non-fiction books were boring they were dry they were dusty you know and the point of narrative non-fiction is to make that history immediate and vibrant and um, to get you swept up in it um so it yeah it's so rewarding when people do discover it as a genre and you realize it doesn't just have to be dry and dusty and dates you know it, you can find a a way of making history engaging because it is you know history is Mm -hmm. is essentially just about people and it can be everyone is interested in in people people are interesting you know and you know whether they lived 100 years ago or 10 years ago or are living now you know we're all interested in in what people are doing and thinking and feeling and the adventures that they have and the injustices they face you know that is compelling however old or however new your story is
1: it's what Lin Manuel Miranda did for Alexander Hamilton.
0: That's right. <laughs> right.
2: I had to. I was so inspired by Hamilton when I was writing the women they could not silence. I just kept listening to the soundtrack like on repeat. It was like, okay, this is. I need to sort of try and emulate this way of boiling down to the the key dramatic moments. You know, making it engaging. You know, whenever you're writing a, a narrative nonfiction book, you will have done so much research and it's about stripping all of that away and just focusing on the core of your story. You know, what is the story that you are telling? Do I need to include this bit about her going off and doing that? Do I need to, you know, and as I say about the collaboration uh, process with Elizabeth, you know, there were things that she might have dedicated pages and pages to in her memoir. And so reading it, you think, or perhaps it, you know, it was obviously important to her is it important to my story? And, you know, you sometimes have to make those decisions about what you're going to cut or not include. And as I say, I was inspired by Hamilton because he does that brilliantly. You know, it's such a huge uh, expanse of time that he covers in the musical. And yet he picks out the highlights that he feels are important and that move the story along.
1: Exactly. And even the details about each person that he chooses to include like i remember i heard him on a podcast talking about um how he originally really wanted to play aaron burr and he like kind of wrote it with Him playing Aaron Burr in mind to some degree, Like, and I heard him say he was like, he was like, I mean, if you wrote Wait for It, wouldn't you want to sing Wait for It? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But he talked about how his he called it his way in, like his way into Aaron Burr. This isn't a Hamilton podcast, but I just love talking about it too. (laughs) But he, of course, read uh, the author's name escapes me again. But you know, he read the the Hamilton biography, and that's what got him down this road. And so he already had this strong affinity for Hamilton and there was a lot about his immigrant upbringing that lin Miranda like related to but Aaron Burr was a little bit harder for him to find a way into Aaron Burr and writing him with as much nuance and affection I think that he would write for Hamilton and he said it was his parenthood that or fatherhood that aaron burr was a father you know despite whatever else you think and lin manuel miranda is also a father and that was the way he found that sort of empathy and um care that he found to write uh aaron burr with with the texture that he did you know i thought that was fascinating i want to ask you about so hungry authors i know you've like we sent you our sheet with our description about how hungry authors are people who just writers who are determined to succeed, they're scrappy, they're going to go for it, no matter what. And I know that your way into publishing was, you know, you were an editor, you sort of came a semi traditional route in that you were in the industry. But I think I, I like that your story did begin in your entry into the writing was still just raising your hand at every opportunity, saying yes, when anything more or less came your way and finding yes. ways in. Were there any other like scrappy things that you did early on or things that you've seen some of your authors that you published um, do to, um, yeah, get out there and find a way to make their publishing dreams come, through, come true. We have so many people in our audience and Ariel and I get asked all the time about how to get published. And there's all kinds of tradition, you know, there's building a platform and, you um, you know, just, yeah, like writing, writing for some big publication, which is a great idea. But in general, um, we find that people, if you just keep your head down and write well and keep going and keep seeking out new opportunities, um, things will happen. So anyway, tell us more about your thoughts about your scrappy beginnings or those of another author that you worked with.
2: I find this quite a hard um, a hard question to answer in a way. Um- I guess looking back I can see that it was kind of scrappy to be putting my hand up at every you know every opportunity or whenever I thought I you know I would be a good author for for the ideas that that were coming up what I I think what I will say is that um it's not necessarily a a scrappy thing but I can remember having dinner with a a friend when I was probably in my mid-20s and you know my editing career was was going really well but I felt quite unfulfilled by it and I can remember saying to her like across the table um you know I feel like there's something you know there's more that I have to give than you know and I was kind of frustrated by it because I couldn't see a way of expressing all this stuff that I knew I had inside me and I wanted to let out, but I didn't have any outlets for it. And as often happens, you know, life seemed too busy to be writing my novel or following my great passion. You know, it was so I didn't have a, a kind of outlet. And I guess I want to say to your listeners, you know, if, if you're if you feel like that, if you don't feel there, there is time, there isn't the outlet, you'll you feel unfulfilled by the job that you're doing, you know, I, I would say, you know, changes ahead necessarily. It's not necessarily going to be like that forever, you know. And I think for me, you know, sort of how how it changes, it is taking opportunities, you know. When I first went freelance, I thought I would spend most of my time editing, but then I was fortunate that, you know, uh, a colleague um, had a, a book that she needed ghostwriting, and as I say, she incredibly trusted me. She knew I was interested in getting into ghostwriting. She trusted me to do it at the same time as an editor I'd met someone that I thought had an amazing story to tell and had I stayed in publishing I would have wanted to be her Mm -hmm. publisher but I approached her and and said I think you've got an amazing story you need a ghostwriter you know would you like to work together on this and again she trusted me to do it and then we pitched to the publisher together so this is kind of like a long rambling story but I guess the scrappy things is yeah it's taking opportunities it's throwing yourself um you know in at the deep end sometimes even if you don't have the experience um you haven't done it before sometimes if you trust yourself it's that hard thing if you don't know you know you don't know what you can do till you try basically so I think take the opportunities throw yourself into it I always believed that I could do it and in fact when I left uh my job um the colleague that trusted me to go straight she gave me a picture that said she believed she could do it so she did Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's a a really cool quote and it kind of sums up what happened for me when I went freelance I thought I was going to be an editor these two ghostwriting projects came up simultaneously I had an idea for like a pop culture biography that I wrote under a pseudonym so I got you know that became a book deal I just pitched it to editors that I knew Mm -hmm. that became a book deal someone else asked me to write something else and you know before I knew it I was a full-time author and then those Mm -hmm. projects led to other projects led to other projects and you know, then I wasn't doing any editing at all. I was, I was literally just yeah. writing, ghostwriting, writing other books, sometimes under pseudonyms, sometimes under my own name. And it is that story of, you know, things snowball and just take that first leap, put yourself forward, make the call, send the email, you know, because people can. Trust you. Well, I think that is one of the most important
0: parts of what we're seeing as what, you know, what we're calling the hungry author's mindset is that it's not a one time thing. You know, writing your book is not something you just do once, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> uh, every book is preparation for the next book, is training for the next book. And putting, you know, all of your hopes and dreams and pressure into this first book is a really quick way to. Kill that book in some ways, you know, to kill your motivation to write it, to put way too much pressure on it. But I am seeing over and over again in the successful authors that we talk to that they do a lot of different books and they take lots of different attempts before they find the thing that they become known for. And it is yeah. something that just kind of grows over time as you feed it as you give it lots of air and water and and really grow it in your life
2: yeah completely and you know the way the radium girls uh, came about is is kind of a you know similar story of you know I'd never written a history before but before and I think had I gone into it knowing how much work was involved how long people normally spend to write kind of books like that I would have been so intimidated uh by that and I think it was But again, I just sort of thought, I think this should be a book. It was a topic I did feel passionate about. It was, you know, one of those serendipitous things where everything came together. So Mm -hmm. I found the story of the Radium Girls through directing a play about them. You know, I mentioned earlier in the podcast about my passion being theatre, that in Mm -hmm. my spare time, I had acted for years. And in the spring of 2014 i just made my directorial debut um mm. doing a production of Lorca's Blood Wedding and had loved it so much that I wanted to find another play to direct because I wanted to direct again and so I googled great plays for women and one of the plays that came back on the google search was about the radium girls it was called wow. The Shining Lives by Melanie Marnich fell in love with the script um was able to put the play on knew it was based on a true story so started researching realized there was no book that existed that was a narrative non-fiction account that put these really special women at the heart of the story that told their personal stories you know wasn't just about how they changed labour laws, wasn't about their scientific contribution to the world. It was, you know, about a book about them as women, as people, as survivors, as fighters. Um, You know, that was the story that I thought needed to be told. And it was that serendipitous thing that I found it because I was passionate about theatre and, you know, following that passion and, and that heart led me to this story that has changed my life. And I found it about... I think I first well I put on the play about six months after I'd gone freelance so in terms of my lifestyle I had the freedom to say you know what I am going to put my all behind this um, story I am going to you know go off to America for a a month and research it and I had the freedom to do that to say I'm going to commit my life to telling this story and you know I didn't have the corporate nine to five job in my calendar that was keeping me at home and and not enabling me to to follow that dream and to follow that passion Mm. um so that's how the book came to be as I say it was just this serendipitous coming together that leap of faith that I'd never written a book like that before but I believed I could I could tell it in a way that no one else had done it before I had faith in myself that I knew what this story was and how I wanted to tell it you talked earlier about pressure of putting everything into that one book I had no idea when I wrote the Radium Girls, that it was gonna be the book that changed my life. I had no idea it was gonna become a New York Times bestseller and, you know, do everything that it's uh, gone on to do. For me, it was just me and the women and believing that the world deserved to hear their story and that they deserved a book that celebrated them. And it was kind of just me and them, you know, and me trying to do justice to them and, and give them this book for them. Yes. And then what happened next just blew my mind. But it was very much a sort of insular process, really. It was it was just me and them.
1: I love the way you talk about trusting yourself because you know, we hear from a lot of our audience members and struggle ourselves with either, yeah, you know, trusting yourself, imposter syndrome, you know, doing something before you feel ready, that sort of thing. And and I think all the time about I like analyze that in myself because half the time. When i've taken on a new project it's you know maybe the biggest one i've ever done feels like the most important one i've ever done and i don't know if the feeling ever goes away when i submit that first chapter the client or whoever the editor gets the first look and i just swear for like 24 hours i just know i'm gonna get fired you know i'm like i'm just yeah. like <laughs> worried they're gonna be like i don't think it ever are. goes away <laughs> <laughs> right and so i just go back and forth and be like what is wrong with me like am i in my driving, because I keep going for bigger things, so something in me must think, you know. And then when I feel, when I am really clear-headed about it, I feel what I think you've described, which is, I might feel imposter syndrome, I might get nervous, I might get scared. At times, I do still feel really inadequate, but almost always, at some point, a little voice comes back around, and I still feel like, oh, I can do this, you know. Like it's not every day, all day it's certainly you know not every week all week but at some point in every project i do still feel something that's like no you know how to do this you might not know now but you can find out you know and i just love yeah i just love that you shared that and i would encourage all of our readers to like if you're experiencing like imposter syndrome that's okay it's it's normal and it doesn't go away and it doesn't mean you shouldn't be doing what you're doing but if you have a little voice that every once in a while says you can do this, or you might not know how, but you know you can figure it out, because you've figured out other things before, then, like, listen to it, because that means you can, you know? Yeah,
2: totally, and, and, you know, I have imposter syndrome, too, you know, I, you know, particularly writing Women They Could Not Silence was, was so hard, because it was following on the back of the Radium Girls, which had had this huge success, it was a really hard book, to write. I doubted myself at every step. Um, I thought it was terrible. You know, you can't look at it. You can't reread it. Um, there were, there were, I, I got to the point where I was like, okay, some phrases are okay. I don't you know. <laughs> I like some phrases. <laughs> in it.
1: Like, can I ask you a question actually about the radium girls when you, you know, we get asked a lot about audience and i know you know everything starts with an idea and usually your passion for the idea and you've described your your just love and affection and care for for the for the radium girls and writing with them but we all know in traditional publishing you have to get somebody higher up to care as well and also believe that there's an audience for this book so tell me about that idea and your belief that there's an audience for it and then convincing an editor you know, that there was an audience for it.
2: Yeah. And um, so, yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, we talked about serendipity earlier with the, you know, the freedom and the, the following my love of, of passion. The other element to it, of course, was that I was a writer with experience of publishing. So I knew how to put a book to proposal together and, and sell it, you know, to, to sell the pitch, you know, I, I didn't go away and write the book first, while I was uh, still directing the play and rehearsing the play, I put together a a book proposal and sent it um, to editors. Now, I didn't have a literary agent at that time. Um, This book came about because I approached the editors that I knew in London. It was all done from the UK uh, initially, uh, sent it to the editors I knew. And a lot of them, the, the problem that they had with the book was that the women died and they didn't think it was not a happy ending now anyone who reads the book knows that actually it is kind of like it's it is a tragedy and it is heartbreaking and you will cry your eyes out but it is also strangely uplifting in a in a way Mm -hmm. um you know the the impact that they had and the legacy that they left and the fact that they took agency um over what was happening to them you know these are all uplifting and inspiring things and luckily one editor could see that Um, And she actually she was very insightful because she asked me to add a a postscript or an epilogue to it that, you know, explained all of the incredible legacy that the Radium Girls had had that really brought it up to the modern day to show their impact throughout the 20th century, you know, the incredible impact that they had. Mm. Um, And I think that was the difference that she had the insight to be able to to see that it needed that sort of final chapter, as it were. So she was the only one actually who offered on the book. I only got one offer um, from the UK for Radium Girls. But obviously you only need one. Um, That's right. And then then the book uh, can happen. So, yeah, in terms of audience and putting it together as a proposal... I remember, you know, I compared it to something in the UK called The Sugar Girls, um, which was, uh, I think it was a Sunday Times bestseller, and it was about the women working in uh, the Tate and Lyle uh, factories in the UK, I think during wartime, Mm -hmm. um, you know, women going to work, having that female empowerment time, you know, that sort of thing. So in my initial proposal, that was, I I can't remember, that was certainly one of the ones that I cited and the story essentially is kind of Erin Brockovich. Um, how did I describe it? Erin Brockovich meets Maid in Dagenham uh, starring the Pink Ladies. That was my pitch uh, That's when awesome. I was pitching to direct play. Mm-hmm. And it's a similar thing for, um, for the publishers as well.
1: Yeah. I haven't done this a lot, but I, <clears throat> I have learned from some agents that I've worked with. You know showing the success of of a book that you're trying to sell um you don't have to use comp type your your only comps don't have to be books or books don't have to be your only comps i'm i what i mean is you had a play that i'm assuming was like you know fairly successful and that you you know you were able or let that it existed and people went to see it and the play is of the same is about the same um the same idea but even pointing to the play is being like well there, there's like content and material around this. People are interested in it. They're seeing it, you know, that's- um,
2: I have to say, I think it really helped the editor who bought the book actually came to see the play. Mm-hmm. As I say, I, I, would, I did my book proposal while I was still re- rehearsing. Mm-hmm. So when I sent my pitch to editors, I said, the play will be on these dates, you know, let me know if you'd like to come and see it. And she did come and see it. And I think she found it so moving that that really inspired her to want to publish the story.
0: Oh, that's so smart. I definitely see that, you know, having a personal connection, finding a way to like make that, you know, emotional um, appeal in some ways to even an agent or an editor can make all the difference in the world it's interesting too. We've Liz and I have talked a lot about, and we write about in um, the book that we're working on the proposal that we're pitching about balancing creativity and marketability. And it sounds like you do this very well, probably because you have that experience, you know, in a traditional publishing house, but you also listen to your heart, which we've talked about with other um, people on this podcast too, but there definitely is that you know, it takes both. It takes that creativity, listening to your gut and your instincts and knowing how to pitch something to the market and knowing how to get people to buy into what you're doing. How do you, how do you think about like balancing those two things?
2: I think you're right that it is a balance. I mean, I think I have, particularly when I'm choosing an idea and I think that's when it comes in, actually, it's about when you're choosing the idea and, and, and pitching it you do have a list of criteria that you have to hit. So mine would include, you know, um, does it have enough first-person material for this Mm. historic subject for me to be able to write the kind of book that I want to write about it? Other thing, you know, has the topic been covered before? You know, whether that is the general uh, topic or whether it is that specifically. So as I say, both Radium Girls and Elizabeth Packard had had books on them published before, but none of them was a intimate narrative nonfiction account That is what I wanted to bring to the table, as it were. Mm. So, I think, yeah, for me, you almost bring that sort of marketing side of your brain to the fore early on in the process. And then, once you commit to an idea, that's when you can let the heart and the creativity flow. Mm. Now, don't get me wrong, they have to be involved at the start as well in choosing the idea. But there have been ideas that I've liked that I've dismissed because, you know, for whatever reason, it's not the right time, it's not the right topic, there's not enough material. So it has to be that combination at the beginning. And then once the boxes are ticked for the marketing side, then you can let yourself be free.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I love that about like bringing a distinct point of view. I once heard an agent say, um, tell me something I don't know about a topic I already love,
2: which is, you know, like an
1: interesting way of saying like, okay, you already like this and that's great. You probably like a lot of stuff. But what's Mm -hmm. something that you can say? And in your case, perhaps, you know, like these stories existed. There was even previous books about them, but they hadn't been written in this narrative way that you wanted to do it. So what's a topic that you love that an audience already has an, uh, an appetite for that you can say something new and different about, you know, or perhaps even say something the same, but say it in a different way.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, you can see that sometimes with other uh, narrative nonfiction writers, you know, um, when I was researching ideas recently, I was sort of looking like thinking, just as you say, is there is there a figure that is loved that there's a a twist in their story that I can share, you know, Um, and Eric Larson, his uh, The Splendid and the Vile that came out recently, that's about Winston Churchill, you know, there are so many books about Winston Churchill, that there has never been an Eric Larson book about Winston Churchill about this, you know, one year in his life, you know, um, so sometimes it, it's like that, you know, and Candice Millard as well, I think she, did she also write about Churchill, but again a different, or oh, it was, anyway, she she too has, has chosen some very famous figures from history that tells you a new story, perhaps a story from earlier in their life, for example, um, that isn't, say, Winston Churchill in the Second World War, it might be Winston Churchill, you know, 30 years before what events made him into the man that we later know from history. Um, So those are kind of interesting ideas as well to, to think about.
0: I'm curious, I know that you just said in your newsletter that you've chosen a subject for your next book, and you're not ready to reveal it, which is makes perfect sense. But will you be coming to the US again? Yes I will. I can yeah, say
2: that. Much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, hopefully I'm coming in March to do a to do a research trip. So I've got oh, all my course. preparation to do over the next few months and then uh, my my process because I'm a British writer writing American history is I come to America and I'm I'm kind of like a hamster. I just go on an information gathering trip mm-hmm. like photographing all the documents that I can find. I try and plan everything before I come so I know where I'm going, which libraries um, I'm all booked in to, to, to know what I'm going to, you know, hopefully find in, in the libraries and then I capture it and take it back to England uh, to actually go through and, and process.
1: Oh, that's so much Can fun. Can you tell us where in America, where in the U.S. you're going to be?
2: Uh, I won't say that. Ju- I mean, it, it, I probably could say that, but it's, um, yeah, I'll, I'll keep it under wraps uh, beyond saying it is American history. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: Well, we'll be really excited to hear um, to hear what it's going to be. Uh, are there any, you know, final words of advice that you would give um, aspiring authors? You've already shared so many wonderful words of wisdom already.
2: Um, I think I would say just keep keep plugging away and believe in yourself, write what you're passionate about, I, you know, and amazing things can happen. You know, I it was my dream to become an author and I'm living proof that dreams can come true. And as I say, when I was in my mid-20s, like, you know, and I know that's young, but whether it's mid, your mid-20s, mid-30s, mid 60s you know life never stays the same that's that's the one thing that we do know you know when if you feel you're stuck in a rut or you're unfulfilled you you know you can change it and life can change and life will change you know Mm. even if we're on top of the world and we're loving what's happening life will change you know things do change and they get different and um, life is out there for you to see so go for it
0: thanks for being part of the hungry authors community if you like this episode could you do us a huge favor head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We would so appreciate it. You can also follow us on Instagram
1: at Hungry Authors or hungryauthors.com, our website, to get more information about our masterclasses and upcoming episodes. Remember that you have a story and a message worth publishing. And if you've got the hunger, you can make it happen.